Tom Woods Show, episode 2104. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at threefreecourses.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. I want to take today to talk a little bit about journalism, and the way I'm going to do it is by sharing some clips with you. I sent out an email to the newsletter list that I have. And remember, you can hop on that thing. I'm about to change my homepage, by the way, at tomwoods.com. So if you go there, you might not be following exactly the same instructions that I'm giving you now, but it'll be obvious how to hop onto my email list. But anyway, I sent out an email talking about a conference, a roundtable discussion that you might have heard about at the University of Chicago in partnership with The Atlantic magazine. And the conference was on disinformation and democracy and that whole thing. Now, this was about as Orwellian as it gets because who is more responsible for disinformation than the very people they wound up featuring? So Brian Stelter from CNN and Ann Applebaum from The Atlantic. I mean, The Atlantic occasionally publishes a 75% truth-telling article. You know, every 37th article meets that description. But By and large, you're going to see them towing the establishment line. So they thought they were going to have this nice little roundtable discussion, and people would sit there and eat it up and leave. But instead, a group of students, so this was held at the University of Chicago, a group of students at a publication called the Chicago Thinker actually had the effrontery to ask some challenging questions of the people on these panels. One of them is a Christopher Phillips, and I want to play for you now the full audio of his question to Brian Stelter of CNN on that panel. So we're going to listen to that. And I'm happy to say, by the way, these Chicago thinker people seem great. They've got some conservatives, they've got some libertarians, but they're the good kind of both of those things. They're the non-loser, basically normal people libertarian, and they are not the usual platitude, neocon type of conservative. And they really seem like good examples of the traditions they represent. And as a matter of fact, they wrote to me shortly after this whole hullabaloo took place because I covered it in my newsletter and they were happy about that. And so now I got a conversation going with them and maybe we're going to see if we can get some of them here on the Tom Woods Show. So anyway, here is our brand new friend, Chris Phillips, asking his question. Hi, thank you for coming. My name is Christopher Phillips. I'm a first year at the college. My question is for Mr. Stelter. You've all spoken extensively about Fox News being a purveyor of disinformation, but CNN is right up there with them. They pushed the Russian collusion hoax. They pushed the Jesse Smollett hoax. They smeared Justice Kavanaugh as a rapist, and they also smeared Nick Salmon as a white supremacist. And yes, they dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop affair as pure Russian disinformation. With mainstream corporate journalists becoming little more than uh, apologists and cheerleaders for the regime, is it time to finally declare that the canon of journalistic ethics is dead or no longer operative? All the mistakes of the mainstream media and CNN in particular seem to magically all go in one direction. Are we expected to believe that this is all just some sort of random coincidence or is there something else behind it? 
All right, that was the question. Now you're going to listen to the alleged answer. Now remember, the thrust of the question at the end was, why are all these errors running in the same direction? Like, why aren't any of these mistakes made in an anti-Biden direction, for example? Why are they all pro-Biden? Why are they all pro-Democrat, for that matter? If these were just understandable errors that anybody, because we're all imperfect, that anybody might commit, why are they all running in the same direction? Doesn't that seem like an odd coincidence? Remember, that was the thrust of the question. Now, see if you can spot any type of answer to that in what follows. It's too bad. It's time for lunch. Uh, you have 30 seconds. No, I mean, there's a, there's a clock that says 30 seconds. But I, I think my honest answer to you, and I will, I'll come over and talk in more detail after this, is that I think you're describing a different channel than the one that I watch. But I understand that that is a popular right-wing narrative about CNN. I think it's important when we talk about shared reality and democracy, all these networks, all these news outlets have to defend democracy. And when they screw up, admit it. But when Benjamin Hall, the Fox correspondent, was wounded in Ukraine, the news crews at CNN and the New York Times stopped what they were doing, and they tried to help. They tried to help him get out of the country. They tried to find the dead crew members. That's what news outlets do. That's how they actually do work together to your question about sharing those kinds of connections and trust. We don't talk about it enough, though. We don't share that reality about how that happens. And with regards to the regime, I think you mean the President Biden. The last time I spoke with a Biden aide, we yelled at each other. So that's the reality of the news business that people don't see, that people don't hear. They imagine that it's a situation that simply is not. But I think your question, it speaks to the failure of journalism to show our work and show the reality of how our profession operates. We have a lot of work to do, I think. All right, so of course, no answer, right? No answer. What a great video this makes, though, and audio clip, because that student summed up so intelligently what the objections to this claim that Fox News is the source of disinformation, which is like a, you know, a seven-year-old's analysis, just showing case after case after case of the way the rest of the media, and sometimes even Fox News, just repeats the regime line. And so what is Chris Phillips? I mean, 18 or 19 years old, and yet he's got his head screwed on straighter than 99% of the American public. He knows all of this. He sees right through the regime and the media, and he can formulate a question like that. Absolutely outstanding. Now I want to play you another clip, and this one is from a student named Daniel Schmidt, and he is asking a question of the Atlantic's Ann Applebaum. Now listen to Daniel Schmidt's question. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm Daniel Schmidt. I'm a freshman at the University of Chicago. My question is for Ms. Applebaum. So in 2020, you wrote, those who live outside the Fox News bubble do not, of course, need to learn any of the stuff about Hunter Biden, referring to his laptop, of course. A poll later after that found that if voters knew about the content of the laptop, 16% of Joe Biden voters would have acted differently. Now, of course, we know a few weeks ago, the New York Times confirmed that the content is real. Do you think the media acted inappropriately when they instantly dismissed Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation? And what can we learn from that in ensuring that what we label as disinformation is truly disinformation and not reality? All right. So what he's laid out here is that this was a story the media got dramatically wrong, but also that it had electoral consequences because he cites that polling data. Now, a relevant answer, a relevant sort of answer you might have given would have been to say, well, I've seen that polling data and I'm not sure I believe it or something like that. 
Or it would be, yeah, the media really, really got that wrong and should be embarrassed. There's some kind of thing like that. Now listen to what her actual answer was. My problem with Hunter Biden's laptop is I think it's totally irrelevant. I mean, it's not whether it's disinformation or, I mean, I don't think the Hunter Biden's business relationships have anything to do with who should be president of the United States. So I don't find it to be interesting. I mean, that, that would be my problem with that as a major news story. Now, how about that? It's not interesting to her. Well, okay. I think from now on, the new standard should be, if it's not interesting to Ann Applebaum, then we don't need to hear it. And of course, no acknowledgement of the fact that whether or not this interesting or uninteresting story satisfied the interest level of Ann Applebaum, it had political consequences. And yet the media and the media sat on it. So the media sitting on that story had political consequences. No acknowledgement of that at all. No acknowledgement of that. Now, if we lived in the opposite world in which the media were all right-wing and anti-establishment and they sat on some story that would have helped Biden, let's say, I am quite sure from Ann Applebaum, she would have found that story interesting and we would never have heard the end of what the media did. So I am flabbergasted at how great these students are. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, there are professional, you know, like conservative intellectuals out there and libertarian think tankers, whatever, who could not have formulated questions like that. And look at the responses from the media establishment. No response at all. When they're actually confronted with something other than a softball over the plate, they have no idea what to say. And wow, is that revealing on these recordings. Now, for the rest of this episode, although, you know what, hold on a minute. Before we get to the rest of this episode, let me say a quick word for our friends at Persist SEO. This is going to help you guys. Because if you're getting buried by your competition online, why not build your brand, your reputation, and your lead flow with digital marketing from Persist SEO? If you're a small local business and you're trying to compete against large companies in the service industry, you can increase your visibility with Persist SEO. What if you're not getting any leads coming in on a consistent basis or not nearly as many as you'd like? Well, website search engine and conversion optimization can help move the needle to a more prosperous business model for you. Or if you're tired of cold calling and who likes that, use your website as a lead generation engine and Persist SEO can help you. If you're not showing up on the search engines in your area, you can get found with the help of Persist SEO. All you have to do is call 770-580-3736 or visit them at ineedseo.help for a free website audit and consultation. That's 770-580-3736 or visit them at ineedseo.help. All right, so for the rest of this episode, I want to play you something that you may not have heard before, and it's on our topic. Some of you know that I did a series of cartoons with our old friend Michael Malice, and they were called The Politically Incorrect Guide, and they were loosely based on the book series by that name, published by Regnery Publishing, of which I had the first entry. I wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, and that kicked that series off. So we did an animated series together, and it was great. I mean, this particular episode, I want to play for you. Unfortunately, you won't get the video if you know, you're listening in your car, but on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2104, you will see the video embedded. You can watch the cartoon. But between the initial video and various clips from the video that we released separately on the individual topics within the video, this had well over a million views. 
after it came out. Now, just so that I can answer and anticipate a question, in fact, I've already gotten this question from a number of people. People want to know, is there going to be a season two of the Politically Incorrect Guide? And the answer is actually no. I mean, we had no shortage of viewers, as I just said. I mean, we had a million views on just this one episode. But Michael and I just got really busy. I mean, Michael's life has just gone berserk. As you know, he's on every show in the universe. You know, he's, he's doing different media every five seconds. He's working on a book. And I just launched a big, big membership site project. And we just decided that we don't want to spread ourselves too thin. So unfortunately, you're going to have to cherish these season one episodes of the Politically Incorrect Guide. But what I'm going to play for you now is the audio version of the Politically Incorrect Guide. And so you'll miss out if we are playing different roles because you won't see what we look like, but you can probably guess from context clues what's going on here. So I hope you enjoy the Politically Incorrect Guide to Journalism. Tom, Tom, you will never believe what I just saw. Wow, what? Tell me. I'm at this park, right? And there's all these teenagers there. And this guy came up to them and he kind of got in their face. Wow, was it violent? I mean, like, did he hit them or something? No, 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 no. He started singing to them. And then they stood there and they looked at him. That's your story? What are you talking about? Oh, this is the most important thing happening in America today. We're told a heroic tale about journalists, right? Everybody at every step of the journalistic process, from the publisher to the reporter to the editor, they're supposed to decide what's important or interesting by viewing the story through an objective lens. And they cast themselves in this heroic role. Democracy dies in darkness. Without them, we'd be living under Hitler. This just in, NBC News correspondent Katie Tour says, Like firefighters who run into a fire, journalists run toward a story. But are they really? Aren't they more like the arsonists returning to the scene of the crime? They don't actually find the news. They create stories. A lot of times, and you'll see this on Twitter, a journalist will think of a story, then they'll try to find the anecdotes to support the agenda that they're putting forward. The New York Times, which is failing badly, they had an article on A1 above the fold, prime real estate. Here's the story. There's a kid in West Virginia who started watching crazy Nazi videos like Ben Shapiro and Milton Friedman. And soon he's down a rabbit hole of white supremacy before he realized, you know what? This is wrong. That isn't news. That's not even a story. But for the New York Times, it was a prime headline. Do, 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 do. 911, what's your emergency? I need a firefighter sent here right away. In fact, send all the firefighters you got. What's the nature of your emergency, ma'am? There's a kid in West Virginia, and he's watching Ben Shapiro videos on YouTube. I'm scared he might become radicalized. Uh, ma'am, you realize that calling 911 for reasons like this could get you arrested? He's also watching Milton Friedman. Even so. Is Katie Turr available? I'll, I'll settle for Brett Stevens. Or even Paul Krugman. Now, the corporate press will admit they make mistakes. They don't say they're perfect. They'll say, look, we churn out a lot of information every single day based on limited data. Of course, you're going to have errors. 
for various reasons. People are going to try to deceive you, at the very least. But they do their best to learn from their mistakes and to correct them. But Michael, if that were true, they wouldn't come to us with absolute certainty. They'd have some sense of being tentative and careful. Take, for example, the Jesse Smollett story, where there was supposedly a hate crime committed against him, and it seemed kind of suspicious to some people. But it didn't matter what the details were. We got the official narrative immediately. And we were also told that this was indicative of something broader, and that to have any kind of questioning over the details of the case was a reflection on the person questioning the case and not on the media itself or even on Jesse. So immediately we got the narrative that this is all because of Trump's America and its racism. We all know who the perpetrators are. We all know people of color are living in terror and all that. That was what we got, even though the details seemed a little fishy. I mean, 2 o'clock in the morning, it's absolutely freezing out in Chicago. And who can seriously call Chicago MAGA country? Shout that out loud without bursting into laughter. There were fishy aspects of the story, but nobody really wanted to look into them in detail because they already had the story they wanted. New York Magazine, Jussie Smollett hospitalized after racist and homophobic attack in Chicago. Daily Beast, what Jussie Smollett's attack reveals about hate crime in America. It did reveal a lot, didn't it? MSNBC, Jussie Smollett attacked in Chicago by men hurling homophobic racial slurs. There's not even the pretense that something might be up. CNN Opinion, same thing. Jussie Smollett isn't the problem. We are. GQ, Gentlemen's Quarterly. The racist homophobic attack on Jussie Smollett is America's endgame. Can we really trust a magazine that calls itself quarterly, but is published monthly? And let me quote from Gentlemen's Quarterly. While its veracity isn't confirmed, its sentiment needs no fact check. The facts of the case don't matter. We are pushing forth a broader truth. It turned out Jesse Smollett was fake news. Hate crimes are absolutely outrageous and unacceptable. And what else is outrageous and unacceptable is faking a hate crime and exploiting the genuine discrimination oppression that others have felt. How about if we contrast the way the Jussie news item was treated as compared to the way the violent assault on journalist Andy Ngo was treated? So Andy Ngo, he's an independent journalist. This was supposed to be the dream. Everyone can have a camera. Everyone can have a mic. Everyone can be their own journalist. Don't we want a country where everyone's a firefighter? There's no fires left. That's great. So he goes to these rallies with his gear. He films things. He's assaulted. He's sent to the hospital. Has brain damage. Just like Jussie, He's gay and a minority. But Kamala Harris doesn't speak on his defense. People keep quiet. And on Twitter, the response very frequently was, well, the important thing is you shouldn't really call him a journalist. But that's not what the important thing is. The important thing is someone was physically hurt and it was filmed and we know who did it. Michael, it's almost as if there's some kind of double standard going on here. Andy No represents opposition to Antifa and progressivism. And Jussie is like a poster child for it. So by an odd coincidence, Andy is portrayed as somebody who's undeserving of our sympathy, and Jussie becomes a superstar. And that was all over Twitter, and not just unverified people like me. There were super blue checkmark people who said this sort of stuff, from HuffPo, The New York Times, Slate, NBC News, and The Atlantic. In fact, the writer for The Atlantic said, calling Andy Noah journalist is inaccurate. Doing so gives fascists 
a propaganda victory. Jussie and his imaginary assault became a story that everyone in America heard about. Andy, to this day, no one even knows how to pronounce his last name. Now, the argument is, all right, America's gotten more divided. Trump's America. We've gotten more extreme. This is new, and it's a function of our increasingly extremist culture. But this isn't new. During the 90s, when President Clinton was being impeached over perjury, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, NBC News had a credible accusation of sexual assault by the president from Juanita Broderick. They sat on the story for weeks because they said they didn't want to influence impeachment. In 2019, when you have E. Jean Carroll writing a book saying that Donald Trump as a private citizen had assaulted her in the dressing room of a luxury department store, they couldn't put her on the air fast enough. Huge outlets like the New York Times, USA Today, and the LA Times, and Glamour were livid that this story wasn't getting even more attention. They dropped her like a hot potato as soon as Anderson Cooper put her on, and she made the bold claim that most people find rape to be sexy. They think of the fantasies. And if it's true that these firefighters make mistakes and then acknowledge them, where was all the wringing of hands of, why did we put this woman forward so quickly? One bias that does seem to dominate, at least American journalism, runs counter to what we're told, which is that journalists speak truth to power. I find very often journalists are lapdogs to power. The prime example of this was Walter Durante, who won a Pulitzer for the New York Times for his coverage of the Soviet Union back in the 20s and 30s. When I used to teach undergraduates, I was shocked at how many of them had no idea that millions of Ukrainians in 1932 and 1933 were starved to death in a deliberately engineered famine under Stalin. To this day, people don't know about it. Walter Durante of the New York Times was probably the primary reason that people at the time didn't really know what was going on, or at the very least, he made it seem murky, that who can really know what's really going on over there? And when we look at his sympathies, which we see from his own statements, well, his motivations seem pretty clear. I mean, he said, for example, unless untoward and unforeseen circumstances intervene, I, for one, cannot doubt the ultimate success of socialist building in the USSR. And he goes on to praise Lenin and say things that are just embarrassingly over the top about a horrifying butcher. There was a well-known journalist, Malcolm Mugridge. He was the Manchester Guardian Moscow correspondent, and he did go to Ukraine, except he had the temerity to look around in areas where officials didn't want him looking. And he smuggled articles about the reality of the famine out of Ukraine. But the problem was, with Durante assuring people that everything was fine, the result of Muggeridge's articles was simply to make people say, well, I guess nobody can really know what's actually going on. Meanwhile, Muggeridge referred to Durante as, quote, the greatest liar of any journalist I have met in 50 years of journalism. Well, that's not entirely accurate, Tom, because as you know, in 1941, after all those literally millions of people were starved to death, Durante said, well, I was lamentably wrong about the extent and gravity of the man-made famine in Russia during the fight to collectivize the farm. But every reporter who's worth his salt tries always to tell the truth. So he covers up millions of people being killed. And then eight years later, oops, well, I guess that's why pencils have erasers. This is why it's so important to identify an agenda when the press or when any agency of power has it. 
because very often governments can become usurpatious and turn on its own citizenry. It is only the journalists, especially international journalists, who are in a position to make plain what is being done to these civilians in these countries, regardless of one's political views. Food is not a partisan issue. If their agenda is always talk about how bad things are in America and how doing things their way will make it better, many, many lives will be lost and no one will know about it until decades later. Lives that could have been saved. All right, you can make the argument, look, this is 80 years ago. It's a dark moment in the history of the time and of American journalism in general. Fine. The corporate press learns their mistakes, right? That same New York Times, who you'd expect to be sensitive to the fact that they had blood on their hands covering up the Soviet Union's genocide. Still, it's current year. How are we having this conversation? Writes articles about the diversity of Russian astronauts, how women were getting more pleasure under communism, and even happy birthday, Karl Marx. Michael, what do you expect the press to report on Russia? Where are they going to find the space for that? We talked earlier about apologizing and learning from one's mistakes. We're seeing the apologies on page 823, but we're not seeing the amending of the behavior that caused the things that they had to apologize for to begin with. There's a perverse incentive structure here. Here's how it works. You put forward a loosely sourced or even false story. You get a lot of clicks, you get a lot of eyeballs, you get a lot of attention, you get a lot of press. More information comes out, you do your homework, story's false. Maybe you knew it all along, who knows? Then you apologize. The cost of the apology is very little. So there's a huge incentive to do this whole cycle again. So it's basically like an apology tax, 1%. You pay the tax, the story goes away, but the agenda and the broader narrative plows forward. Lather, rinse, repeat. So, Michael, we have an industry then that has an agenda and a bias, pretends not to, demonizes certain individuals, certain classes of people, lionizes others, and in some cases ruins people's lives. How do people find out the real news then? From us, of course. Duh. And now, here's Tom with the weather. Again with the dress. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. But I have a little thing to say for people who live in Chicago or the Chicago area. You may think, well, I better turn this off. But wait a minute. If you don't have something like this in your city, maybe you should think about creating it. I want to tell you about a website created by a friend of this show, a listener of this show, a fellow passenger on the Contra Cruise in the past, the Contra Cruise may it rest in peace, has a website called chicagolandredpill.com. And this is a community. In fact, the way he puts it is this. If the past few years have taught me anything, it's the importance of having a community around you who share your values. Chicagoland Red Pill is a group for liberty lovers in and around the Chicagoland area to get together, enjoy each other's company, and help one another. Come say hi and meet some new friends. So that's like a great idea to me. So for the Chicago people, check out the website, chicagolandredpill.com. I'll also link to it at tomwoods.com slash 2104. But if you're not in Chicago, think about starting a group like that in your city. And I would be glad to promote it on the Tom Woods Show. And the way you do that is go to tomwoods.com slash publicity before you start your site. Get your hosting through my link. You're going to get a great deal. You got to get hosting anyway. Might as well get it through me. And you get numerous bonuses 
and not have to pay one extra cent for them. And one of them is publicity like this, but I also have a private group for everybody who does this so we can help each other out. I got some free tutorials to help you out. So a lot of great stuff coming your way. All you got to do is go to tomwoods.com slash publicity. All right, everybody, I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.